I first found Kristen Hadid through Simon Sinek's website where she posted a short vlog about how culture isn't about ping pong tables and beer. It's about how you feel when you walk in the door. I've been following Kristen ever since. Kristen's the founder of Student Made, a successful cleaning company that has employed thousands of students over the last decade. Kristen believes student made success boils down to one thing and one thing only creating a place with humanity at its core. She says it's a place where people feel accepted for who they are, where they're encouraged to fail and embrace their imperfections, and where they are empowered to reach their potential. In 2017, she published her first book, Permission to Screw Up in which she offers an unapologetic account of her biggest mistakes in leadership. Even if you don't get through this full episode, I highly recommend going to kristenhadid.com and subscribing to her email list. You will not regret it. Kristen Hadid, welcome to Where Others Won't. Hi, thank you. We're going to talk all things leadership and culture, but I want to start with your business. You built a business called Student Made. It's a cleaning business and you specifically say over and over and over again that the thing that you've built the business on was creating a place with humanity at its core. So I want to know from you why. <laughs> What, yeah. what were the things in a, you know, most would call it a, a low skilled environment, you know, low profit margins. You talk about that. Why build it around humanity? Cause I'm sure there was a lot of resistance from, you know, smart business people, financially minded people who are experienced and, and would have said, this is not the way to build it. So what was it that, that made you continue on that path? Well, I'll start with the story of how the company came to be because I think that is really related to your question. You know, I, I certainly never dreamt that I would own a cleaning company. And if someone told me that that was my future, I would have cried and, you know, begged for any other destiny than, than that one because, I mean, cleaning isn't glamorous. I saw myself working on Wall Street and actually that's what I went to school for, finance. So never did I think this would be my life. And it all just kind of happened by chance. I needed to make money while in college and put an ad on Craigslist to clean someone's house, just thinking it would be a, an easy way to, to make some cash, you know, and it was really hard. And I, I was a terrible cleaner. The first woman that hired me, I mean, I basically, I was in her house for seven hours and I'm not even quite sure what I did, um, but she, she needed help. And so she hired me to come back and actually taught me how to clean and <laughs> told her friends about me. And so that's kind of how it started. And there was this turning point right before my senior year where I got a contract to clean hundreds of empty college apartments. And at this time I was 21. This was a way to make a lot of money just before I was planning to move to New York to work on Wall Street. And that was my defining moment. And when this whole, the whole trajectory of my company really changed. So 
imagine I, we have 800 apartments to clean. I hired 60 people to do the work. They were all students. They were all, you know, my peers of mine and the work was so hard and I had no idea how to be a leader. You know, one day I wake up and I'm now I'm leading 60 people. How do you do that? <laughs> and so, um, three days into the contract, 45 of the 60 walked out and they quit. And it was that it was that moment that inspired my obsession with learning how to create a place where people really wanted to be. And I was able to get those people back. We can, we can talk about that maybe in another question. But um, what I what I learned is that, you know, it's not the work that people care about, because who wants to clean toilets? And I couldn't really afford to pay people a lot of money because the margins, as you said, are so low. So what's the point then? You know, how do you get people excited and inspired to come to work? And I learned that it's the environment and just really creating a place where people come first. And like you said, built on, you know, just that real human piece that I think we're missing in business. Well, let's go there. How did you get them back? Because this is what fascinates me about your story and we've had other stories on my show and I've, I've done the flip side of this and, you know, I've had Patty McCord on the show and talking about Netflix and their environment there and, and that's great, but they were creating the future. You're scrubbing toilets. So let, yeah, let's talk about how you got those people back and, and why this environment that you eventually created started to work. Yeah. So, you know, when the 45 people walked out, I felt a range of emotions. I mean, at first I was angry because I didn't understand They didn't give me a reason. They just, they literally just did a mass walkout <laughs> and I was panicking because we had so many apartments to clean and my contract held me responsible. So for whatever apartment wasn't ready, I would have to pay for a hotel room for the resident until move until it was moving ready. And I didn't have any money. So I had to figure out a solution and I was, I think my upbringing really is connected to this. So my, my parents really taught us that failure is a lesson. And when you fail, you have to really just try to move forward. You know, you can't let it um, stop you from taking action. And there's always a gift in every failure if you choose to see it that way. And it was something we talked about. Failure was comfortable. So it was very much ingrained in me. It's just, okay, now what, you know, and I went to the, to the 15 people who hadn't quit, told them what happened. And together we came up with this idea to, to have an emergency meeting at my house. And the way that we got everyone there is we told them if they showed up, they would get their paycheck early. So mm. everyone showed up and I hadn't really put any thought into what I would actually say. I was so worried about getting them there that I didn't think at all about what I would say if they actually showed up. And I was just honest. I just, and I think it was because I, I was young and I didn't know what else to, to be. You know, I just said, I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, I'm sure that's obvious. And I, and I think it's, I was a human. I, I think they saw me as someone who didn't let my ego get in the way. I admitted that I had no clue what I was doing and they really wanted to help me. And they came back. And that was the most powerful lesson to learn early on in the business because 12 years later, that's still my my style, you know, I, I, when I need help, I say it out loud. When I fail, I say it out loud. And I really tried to create a, an environment with my team where that's the norm, where we don't lie. We don't fake it. We don't hide it. We don't run away. When we mess up, we talk about it and it's a normal, comfortable thing. That's so abnormal even today. And, you know, 
when you go on, on LinkedIn and, and you go on Twitter and there's, there's conversations about this stuff, but we're still fighting the battle to create these more human workplaces, aren't we? You know, leaders that that don't need to be bulletproof and and don't need to have all the answers and, and come with vulnerability. And yeah, I, I feel I get stuck in a little bit of an echo chamber with, I listen to people like you and to, to Simon and to, you know, Claude Silver at Vayner and oh. listening to all these voices, but we're still really fighting that battle. Just tell me upon reflection now, so 12 years down the track, tell us where the business is today and, yeah, looking back at it, how you view it now. Yeah, so the business student-made, we're still cleaning. <laughs> um, we, <laughs> we, we do hire people, though, who are not students. We say though that everyone in our company is a student because we're all here to learn and really our culture is about teaching people the skills that they really need to be successful in life and to thrive in life things that I think we aren't taught in school and skills that we may call soft skills and I'm putting quotations around that but really they're hard skills I mean it's like learning how to have a difficult conversation with someone learning how to give feedback and accept it learning how to raise your hand and say, I need help. I'm not qualified to do this. And that that's not a sign of weakness. That's, that's actually a sign of, you know, that's courage. And we just, we, we look at it as, okay, yes, we're here to clean toilets, but what if when you walk out of our doors, you're, you're a better human for having worked here. So we say, we want to teach you the skills that you really need to thrive and then launch you off into the world to make your mark on it. And people actually are required to leave the company. So we, we don't, let people stay for too long. We don't want anyone getting too comfortable. The, the point really is to help them grow into where they want to be. We do have people who've been with the company for nine, 10 years who are on our leadership team, um, but everything is designed around just helping people make their mark on the world. And we do have to tell people, your time is over. You know, you, you have to stop cleaning toilets. And sometimes they say, but I don't want it to be over, which is just crazy. It just shows that it doesn't matter what we do. It's how we make people feel. <laughs> just say that again you know. <laughs> make people leave the organization yes yes and you know here's the thing people will say to me oh how come you invest in people you spend all this money because we do a lot of our profits go to training and development and it's stuff that has nothing to do with cleaning and you do all this knowing that they're going to leave and I think that's the issue is we are afraid to invest in people because, oh, what if they leave? And we, we call it a waste of time, a waste of money. You know, but really, what if, what if we could look at people and look at business and look at our organizations? Like, we're here to make each other better. And the funny thing is, is when you, start, when you stop focusing on trying to keep people hostage and prevent them from leaving, that's actually when they don't want to go anywhere else. Over and over and over again. That's not just in, in business. That's been my experience in the sporting world as well. Yeah. As soon as you give that, well, firstly, that acceptance and the validation, um, it, it actually turns itself around and, and people want to stay. And, yeah, you can see, again, you can see it at the very kind of top end of business. You know, again, you kind of Netflix idea where they're creating the future and everyone wants to be involved. But yeah. I've seen it happen in hospitality as well. Um, and obviously you're creating an environment like that in, in something that people traditionally associate with like massive turnover. Right. Yeah. The, the average for the industry is 75%. Right. Crazy. Gosh. Yeah. Kristen, I love fellow authors. So I want to talk to you about your book, Permission to Screw Up. I, I want to know 
what did you think the book was that you were writing? And then once you launched and it, it became the audience's book, not your book anymore, what happened? Or what did you find? To be candid, writing the book was a really painful process for me. It's and hard, isn't it? It, it, oh, it took two and a half years. I went a year and a half past my deadline, um, <laughs> wanted to cancel the contract numerous times. And I think at first I, I started writing about millennials. And I know we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I realized after writing that book that everything that I was talking about in the book applies to all people, all generations, not just a millennial thing. And it didn't, it didn't feel right. And so I threw it away. And I was having dinner with a, a good friend who's a you know, best-selling author. And I, I was just struggling. Like, how do you, I asked, how do you know if you're writing the right book? And he said to me, you're writing the right book if it's really hard to write. <laughs> and that just really stuck with me because at the time what I was writing wasn't really hard. I was writing a lot about success and about all these amazing accomplishments and discoveries that we've made and, you know, and it just felt empty. And so I thought about what would make this hard. And I, and I reflected back to when I really began my entrepreneurial journey and I felt so alone and really over my whole journey have been, have had moments where I felt alone, like, Am I the only one that screws up and gets it wrong? Because everyone else talks about all the things they're doing right and all these amazing books are inspiring, but it's like, where are the, where are the really messy parts? And I think what happens is people share their stories and they share the early mess ups, but they don't share the things that happened last week, you know? Yeah. And so you just yep. feel like, man, And as I was writing the book, I was experiencing super hard times. Someone who had been with me for over nine years had, had told me that she's leaving the company we decided to sell our second location because it wasn't achieving the, the kind of success that we wanted it to. And, you know, just really hard things. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to write about this stuff. And I remember once I hit submit and, you know, the send button, I was like, oh no, all my scripts are in this book. It's so embarrassing. It's, it's <laughs> so vulnerable. But the, res the audience response to your question it is unbelievable the, the amount of messages we receive, people saying, I thought I was the only one, you know, and here's what happened to me last week. And it's just, it shows, I think that we have a filtering issue. We, we always just show the side that we think everybody, you know, that paints us in the best light. And what it does is it, it makes leadership unattainable because we compare ourselves to people and we're not really seeing the whole story. Yeah. There are very few people to your point that, really write about that. I know you obviously won and I know Neil Pastrisha is another one who specifically went after that subsection. I wanted to just talk about failure and like his book is how to get back up. And he, you know, talks about being, getting divorced and having his best friend commit suicide in the same week and having one yeah. testicle and being a brown kid in Toronto and, you know, all these different things. And you know, when you start with vulnerability, you attract it and people respond, oh my God, me too. Yeah. And, and it just creates this whole new ecosystem for, for better conversations to happen. Yeah. And I think the whole idea, you know, I, I always, my question, whether it's writing or speaking is how do you get the audience or, or the, the reader to think about themselves instead of you and your story? And know that the really the way the book ends is that you don't need anyone's permission to screw up. You know, you, you have to give yourself permission because yeah. it's just, we try so hard to have it all together. But really, if you were to think back to all of your most defining moments, they're probably followed by something really hard. You know, like the, the tough times, the times we fall down, 
those are the moments that make us into who we are. That's great advice uh, in terms of the, the writing a book and it being hard because I certainly found that with my first book and I've been fumbling through my second. So I'm actually, it is an opportune time for us to have this conversation and, and, <laughs> and, and to hear that because I'm like, oh, this is so difficult the second time. It should be easier. I but know. It's, it's because the content, I think, or oh, I'm so attached to the content I'm writing about the recruitment industry. It's really the gateway to all of this conversation that we've had. Who do you let walk into your organization, your culture, and who do you allow to walk out? Yeah. And, and we haven't quite fixed that problem. We, we talk about once they're in, how do we lead them better? But what about where's that first gateway? And yeah, it's been very, very hard, even conceptually to come up with chapters and things like that. But No, it, and, and also, so I don't know if this happened to you, but when I submitted my manuscript, I remember telling myself and everyone else, I am never doing that again. And, so, and many people told me, yes, you will. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. And so here I am thinking about book number two. You know, I haven't started the process yet, but very much will be soon. And I think this is an important point because what, things that are hard are worth doing. You know, mm -hmm. why, why when something is so hard, do we say, yeah, I'll sign up for that again. And I think it's very common for us to want to avoid the hard thing or if something's really overwhelming to say, yeah, not now. And, you know, but you don't want to live in what have, should have, could have land. And I always say that to my team, like, you don't want to be at the end of your life thinking, what if I had, or what if I hadn't try hard things, you know, do them even if they're hard, especially if they're hard, because I, at least what I found is the things that are really hard are the things I'm most proud of when I, when I complete them and that, you know, really add meaning to, to my life and, and my work. Well, let's hook onto that idea and, and take it into a commentary on teams and, and building organizations. Cause I think that's a, it's a valid point. You know, you took, you touched on this earlier around having difficult conversations mm -hmm. and that's something that is still drastically missing from a lot of organizations and a lot of leaders just they don't know where to start and but th that's that catalyst to trust right is you're willing to have these difficult conversations with me about everything and anything and it could be your actual work it could be outside of work but the fact that we we know it's hard and we go and do it anyway it's not revolutionary like we know this in our personal lives you know, when you have an issue with a friend or a partner and you actually have the conversation and find out what both sides are thinking, yeah. that, that pressure that you've built up in your head just kind of melts away. But yeah, we've got to, we've got to have those conversations in the first place. Absolutely. And think about why it's hard. Well, one, we aren't taught really how to have that kind of conversation. And so we model what we've seen, whether it's from our parents or from, um, a leader that we had. And sometimes we aren't the best at these kinds of conversations. So if we are modeling behavior that maybe wasn't the most effective, now that's how we're handling it, you know? And so I think first we have to teach this stuff in school. I really believe that, but it, it, it's what you said. It builds trust and there's nothing worse than finding out from someone else that this, this person's frustrated with you or learning from the person themselves that they're frustrated with you six months after the thing has happened. And, you know, it, it erodes trust. You can actually dissolve all trust by holding on to something and not being honest. And so the other thing though is it's never going to be easy. And I remember thinking like, when am I just going to wake up and think, wow, this, this feedback thing and this tough conversation thing will, will feel easy. It never does because you care about people and you 
you know, these conversations are difficult, but you have to have them if you, if you really care and you really want to build trust. And so a, a tip that I have is I write down how I'm feeling and, and what I really want to articulate so I can be sure to be intentional with my words. And I will just start the conversation with honesty. Look, I really, I really don't want to have this conversation. I am, I am nervous to have this conversation, but I'm going to have it with you because I care about you. And I'm going to read how I'm feeling so I can be sure to get the words right. And then I would love to hear what you think. You know, we don't have to be perfect in these conversations. It's okay to admit that it's hard and we have to have them. I mean, there's no way around it. And particularly if it is around performance in, in particular, you know, it's kind of seen as being soft on people, which I absolutely hate. I hate that narrative. Um, yeah. and, and I see it a lot in sports, obviously, which is still very, very masculine in the leadership style. But like you said, when you lead with that vulnerability and say, I'm nervous about this too, to actually have this conversation, I'm supposed to be the one ticking you off or whatever it is, but I don't want to be doing it. I don't want to be having this conversation. You can really move the ball forward. Yeah. And so I, I have this method. It's not mine. It's from Barry Way Miller, a company that I just absolutely love. They've given me permission to teach this to everyone that I know. It's in the book. It's called the FBI. And it's a way to give feedback so that it inspires someone to change their behavior. And it can also be used for recognition. And so each letter stands for something. The F stands for feeling. The B stands for behavior. And the I stands for impact. And I think when we think about feedback, we don't usually put the feeling piece in there because we want to keep our emotions out of it. Mm-hmm. But really the feeling is what, what inspires the person to want to change their behavior or repeat their behavior if it's recognition. And we're not always very specific on what they did. So if, if you think about having an argument with your significant other and you say something like, oh, you never listened to me, that kind of feedback is never taken with a, oh, you're right. Let me start <laughs> listening to you today. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? I don't understand because you're not giving them the, the, the piece the, to the puzzle that they need to make you feel better. So FBI might look something like this. Uh, let's say someone's late. You could say, I have to tell you, I felt disappointed today when you were 30 minutes late. And the impact is now, I don't know if I can rely on you. And I really don't want to feel this way. Can you help me understand how this happened? And it's just like, you know, do you think the person woke up saying, I can't wait to be 30 minutes late today so that this person doesn't feel they can rely on me? No, it's when we, when we understand how our behavior is impacting people, we want to change it. So we teach the FBI in my, in my company. Every student learns the FBI before they learn how to dust. Wonderful. Yeah, that context is huge. And I, I wrote a chapter and, and I've been on this crusade around context and contextual leadership. And not only leading contextually in terms of making a decision based on the context, but also giving the context. So to your example there, you've actually created context, not only for the conversation, but for the person that you're talking to as well. Yes. This is how it made me feel. This is linked to this. And, you know, how do we move forward here? Can you help me? Yeah. Yep. And uh, there's just so many applications. Like This could be a, a job interview for all, you know, we could mold it that way as well. Right. And I, ha- I, have to, I have to talk about shit sandwiches. Okay. When we like put <laughs> Please, the yes. sandwich in the comp, like, so I think the reason, if, first of all, if you don't know what a shit sandwich is, it's when you need to give somebody critical feedback, but you cushion it with nice things so that it's a little bit of a lesser blow to the person. 
But I think what it actually does is it confuses people because if you compliment them and then you tell them this critical feedback and then you compliment them again, they're like, what are you, did I do something wrong? Am I doing something right? It's just total confusion. And I used to be the queen of delivering feedback that way because I didn't want to get uncomfortable. And what I realized is I was being selfish. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to skirt around the real issue so that I don't feel uncomfortable. Well, that's selfish. If I really care about this person and I really want to help them grow, then I need to just tell them what the issue is and not <laughs> sugarcoat it. But you can still do it in a way that's compassionate. And that's why I really love the FBI. Exactly. Performance and care can go together. That's, yes. I think, the bridge that we need to cross is that you can still drive people hard and be compassionate and loving in, in the way that that occurs. And yes. again, going back, again, going back to my upbringing in, in sports is there's this belief that those two things are polar opposites and they're just not. They're not. They're not. And I had to learn that the hard way for a long time. Culture, culture, culture was my, my thing. And then I realized, wait, we, we have to perform. Otherwise we aren't a responsible company because you have to be able to take care of your people. You have to hit goals. You have to hit metrics. And so you know, becoming the kind of company where yes, culture is important. And so is performance. That was a tough adjustment. But at the same time, now I, now that we're in this place, I'm like, this is how it should be. I mean, you're, you have to have both. You need both. And I think the, the issue probably is more, more, we see more organizations caring more about performance than the culture piece. Um, but both are important. They are. Let's talk about the generational gap. It's such a hot topic wherever you go right now. Everyone wants to talk about millennials and how difficult they are to connect with and they want all these different things. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think we all want to be valued and respected and do good work in teams regardless of what generation we're in. And that's been something that's been missing from a lot of workplaces for a long time. And I think potentially millennials are the ones that are willing to call bullshit on leaders who say one thing and then go and do another. Just kind of been the modus operandi for a long time now. This is one of your big keynote topics. So can you tell us what you see in your business and then what you advise when you speak about it? Yeah, well, you know what I think what I think we've done is we've sort of put people in boxes and we've said like, okay, you're a baby boomer, so this is how you work best and this is what you need and you're a millennial, so this is what you need and no one poor Gen X, no one even talks about Gen X. And then, you know, now we're talking about Gen Z and I never once building my company did I ever ask myself, how do I engage millennials? It was always how do I engage people? And I think the challenge in leadership and the challenge that any team has, whether in a business or not, is you have people from all different walks of life who've experienced all different things, and you have to figure out how to bring people together and to help them work together in synergy and be aligned. And no matter what generation they're a part of, you know, and do I think that there are things that have, sh that have influenced generations? Yes. And, and what I would say for the millennial generation specifically is technology has absolutely influenced us. I think we are used to things happening instantly, maybe more so than other generations before us because of technology. And it's not that we're entitled and that we, that we demand everything in our life happen instantly. It's that 
we need people to teach us otherwise. You know, so one of the things we do in my company is we really have an honest conversation around what it takes to build a career, the, the, the time and the patience required, and that it's not something that just happens overnight. And so I think we mistake, we, we say things like, oh, entitlement and this and this, but we forget to look at the things that have maybe shaped or, or influenced a generation and think about, well, how can we teach? Something else is our relationships. You know, we're used to building relationships from behind a screen because of technology. We know that millennials are the loneliest generation and that the suicide rate for 18 to 25-year-olds is the highest it's ever been. Yet I hear things like, oh, those millennials, they just walk around with earbuds in their ears. They don't want to talk to anyone. It's not true. It's just that when you grow up building your relationships from behind a device, it's almost like you don't really know how to connect with people on a real meaningful level. And we desperately want to connect, but we need people to teach us how. And so in my company, we teach people, what kinds of conversations should we have over text? What should be in person? Um, How do you be vulnerable? What are questions that you can ask that might take a conversation from superficial to a little bit more real and meaningful? And so I just, I think we have to be teaching in our organizations, no matter what. And really it's for all generations, like feedback. I know plenty of millennials that, that can't handle feedback or can't give feedback. And I know plenty of baby boomers where it's the same. You know, it's not like we just, we all need kind of this baseline of now that we have things like technology that help us become more efficient and productive, how do we still maintain the human connection? Let's decide what that means for our organization and teach everyone so that we have the same foundation. So that's kind of the approach that I've taken. And I always like to remind, because I do a lot of speaking and this is one of the most popular topics that I'm asked to speak about. And I always like to remind people it's, this is always going to be the case. We always have a new generation coming in. The, the thing that's always the same mm-hmm. is we're all humans. And everyone wants to feel inspired and safe and like they can work with people they trust. So let's just focus on the things we all have in common and the wants that we all have in common. And if we put our energy there, guess what? It doesn't really matter what generation you're a part of. One of the best things that I've seen and used is just an email to anyone, but again, it kind of focuses on millennials because it's seen as a different world, but send me an, you know, respond to this email and send me three things that you're like really, really interested in and knowledgeable about and passionate about outside of work. Mm-hmm. I send back a list of three things, video games, panda bears, and uh, modern literature. Great. Swing by my office at 2.30 tomorrow. I want you to teach me about video games. What, what do you think that does in terms of building trust with a human being, both in terms of a leader or a manager and an employee relationship on both sides of the coin there? Oh, yeah. I love that. If you sit there in judgment of some kid who plays video games, that's one thing. But if you actually engage and, oh, this is really interesting. So, you know, how, how does e-gaming work? And, and you ask a few questions and have them teach you back like just all sorts of opportunities open up. And again, this doesn't need to be something that's for young people. This is something for everyone. I love you it. Teach me about your world. Yeah. We, there's so much to learn from everyone. We just have to be open. I know we've got to get you out of here, but I want to ask you this. I have been reading a lot about leaders who think, and there's a whole documentary about Bill Gates going into the woods and spending a week there. And it's all sorts of things about solitude and, and places to go and think about leadership. So I want to ask you, where do you find that solitude for yourself? Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's funny you said the Bill Gates documentary. If you haven't seen that and you're listening to this, watch it. It is so good. He does Think Week where he goes off and he just thinks for a week and reads books. And so I actually have a goal to have two Think Weeks this year um, myself. But it's it's even more ironic you ask that question because as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in solitude um, currently in Los Angeles. I'm here for a business trip and decided to just stay an extra day to have thinking time, you know, and I, and I think, um, we're just so busy. We go from one thing to the next that we don't give ourselves the space to really reflect and think and get clarity on things and to read and expose ourselves to new, new ideas and new ways of doing things. And I reached a point where I just felt like I wasn't myself and I don't know, I couldn't pinpoint it. I just felt off. And when I really started to look at how I was spending my days, I realized that that reflection, that solitude, the reading time was missing. I was overbooking myself. And so what I do is, yes, I love the think weeks and thinking about ways that you can go off and do that maybe for an extended period of time, but I like to build it in on a daily basis. So I don't really schedule early meetings anymore. I used to, but I use the morning to really just reflect and think and read a couple chapters of something and jot, jot down some ideas. And I just find that I start the day so much better that way. And I think by the end of the day, you're tired. And as leaders, we can tend to put our needs last. And, and it almost seems selfish when we put our needs first. But what I think is if you really want to serve others, you have to serve yourself and you have to be full yourself so that you have something to give others, you know? And Maybe just think about, could you have one hour every morning? It's just your thinking time and where you go on a walk or you read a book or you journal. I promise it will make such a difference. Just that one hour, huge. I've given multiple presentations and talks about this topic, particularly in my world where we still to this day and CEOs are similar, but they're probably changing faster than sports coaches is what we do is we make heroes out of the NFL coach that sleeps at the stadium yeah, and, and, and doesn't have any time to themselves and sleeps for four hours. And so I'm trying to change that idea. And it's great for me because I'm a, a napper and a deep thinker. So this, this mm-hmm. idea of solitude and this idea of go and rest. And if you're better for the people that you're leading, you're going to be a better leader. Mm-hmm. So that those two things coming together are just magic for me. Magic. I know. We celebrate. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's, it's like we brag about, oh, I got three hours of sleep last night. I worked so hard. It's like, that's not something to brag about. Right. You probably need to go back the, to bed. <laughs> the, new, the new brag is going to be, I slept for 12 yeah, hours. Yeah, I would love that's that. Good. I would win. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, no, it's so important. You're so right. It's huge. Huge. It is. That's that's the next wave. And if you're not on it already, get on the wave because that's where everyone is going in, in the management thinking world and the leadership world. So um, we're shifting there. Kristen, where can people find you that want to follow along with everything that you've got going on? Well, my website would probably be the best. It's kristenhadid.com. And I do have a blog and I if you sign up, you'll get a, a post every Tuesday to your inbox. And I always write about something that just is inspiring to me, hoping that it will inspire you. And on my website, you can find links to social media, my book. Um, I've got a whole page of books that I love and recommend. I need to get your book on there, Cody. But yeah, check it out. And 
you can always message me through the site if there's any specific questions you have. My team and I would love to help. I highly recommend your email. I'm on the email list. You're a, an absolutely refreshing voice in this space. And, you know, I, I'm very guarded with who I follow and who I subscribe to. And, and I mean it when I say it, yours is, is absolute gold class. Oh, um, so anyone listening, I would highly recommend it and uh, social media as well. Thank you. This was, a, this was so fun. It absolutely was. Thank you, Kristen. I'm looking forward to next time.